0: Today, as in the ancient era, the Church is confronted by a host of life stories that contradict and compete with the Gospel. The Book of Colossians demonstrates the supremacy of Christ in all of life and reminds us that He has secured redemption for creation, of which His people are a part. You're listening to a sermon series on the Book of Colossians by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, Please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Colossians chapter 3. We don't actually spend very much time in Colossians this morning. We do at least want to use it as our jumping-off point for our subject this morning, where we're at here in the text. We want to look at Colossians 3:18 to 4, 1. So if you look at verse 18 with Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master. Dear Father, I pray this morning as we begin to work through the subjects that you have laid on my heart that every single person in the room will honestly evaluate where they are at on these issues. Lord, our world is filled with hatred. Though you have made us all in your image, we have rebelled against you, not only through sinning against you, but through sinning against each other as well. And now we recognize, Lord, that here in this room, what this room represents this morning, this church, you are remaking what was broken. You are fixing things that we have thoroughly messed up. And so, Father, I pray that today as, as, as we talk through these issues, as we work through the text, as we contemplate our own heart, our attitude, our thoughts, etc., that in all of these things, your spirit is evidently active in us. Lord, I pray that you will fill me with your spirit this morning so that as I preach, I speak not just as myself, but I speak your words, your truth, and therefore with your authority. Lord, if in anything I, I have in my notes here that is not Correct that is not from you. I pray, Lord, that you will help me just to forget it, to pass over it. So, Lord, our first and only concern is you. So, Lord, help us to have that attitude and mindset as we approach your word this morning. (laughs) Two weeks ago, I used an illustration about the KKK. And I uh, heard afterwards, that I had made a couple of people nervous when I started into that illustration. They didn't quite know where I was going with that or what I was about to say. Hopefully they were relieved by the time I was done. But many of you, I would imagine, did not grow up in areas where the KKK was particularly active or known. I know you know what it is and what they stand for. Just unless you grew up in the South mainly, you probably didn't uh, encounter them too often. Well, Growing up in the South in Eastern North Carolina, a small town, They were a group that I was introduced to at at a fairly early age. And by that, I don't mean that I actually knew anyone who was in the Klan itself, at least now that I was aware of, they tended to keep their involvement fairly quiet and to themselves. But it was something that I heard talked about uh, fairly regularly and almost always in a positive way. I grew up in racism. Being racist where I live was just as natural as being American or being Southern. It was just who you were and what you were. I remember hearing grown-ups talking about looming race wars that were coming, okay? sometime in the future, blacks and whites would fight. There would be this major war and something was going to come out of it. I knew people who carried weapons <coughs> either on their person or in their vehicle, specifically for African-Americans. I knew people who, for, the, for them, the Civil War was still a subject of intense debate and bitter feelings. And sometimes people who don't grow up in that world hear that particular comment and they laugh. They're like, what's wrong with those people? Well, I don't know exactly what's wrong with those people, but it's true. This is how they felt. And and for them, it was a major, major issue. Hank William Jr.'s song, The South of the One We Had Made, was almost the uh, second national anthem for some people. And what is, in my mind, the saddest part of all these memories that I'm recounting for you has to be this. That every single one of those memories that I just named had to do with people who called themselves Christians. Every single one of them. Now, with the churches that I was involved with, and please understand, I can only tell you what I saw. Right? Not what was true everywhere, but what I experienced. Of the churches that I was a part of and experienced, I would say that the church, when it came to the matter of racism, was no different than the world, not at all. You had black churches, you had white churches, you had Hispanic churches, and they did not go together. Occasionally, because we were an Air Force town, you would have maybe a family, a black family, a Hispanic family, something like that, come to church one Sunday because they're coming from a a part of the country where it wasn't a big deal, And, and why would it even occur to them that they couldn't do that? And while I never saw anyone be outwardly rude to those people, They never came back a second time. That was just the world in which I grew up. And and, and unless I stand up here and present it as if it had no impact on me, let me just confess to you all publicly, it did. That world, that culture affected me personally. And I, too, was racist. The only thing I can say in my defense, the only thing I had going for me was that I was racist like I was a brave man. I was a Braves fan because my father was a Braves fan, because all my friends were Braves fans. But once I left home and I left that world and left their influence, I stopped caring about the Braves altogether. In fact, I stopped caring about baseball altogether. I only really care about football anymore. Well, and a similar means, I was racist in the same way. My family was racist, my church was racist, my friends were racist, therefore I was racist. I was a follower. Not a leader. And though it may be a little different than the other people, it was still wrong. But for me, I couldn't see how long it was until two things happened in my life. Number one, I left home and went to college. And I, I know I've talked about this a little bit before, but for those of you who haven't heard it, I'll say it again. I grew up with a, in a very small world. Okay? If you grew up in a small town, you probably understand what I'm talking about. I grew up in a very small world. People thought the same, they acted the same, they did the same things. Everything in life had an answer because there weren't very many questions to ask. The world was very small. And here I go to college and I had a roommate from Michigan. And he might as well have been from China, as far as in my mind. Because I had never experienced anything like that. And you laugh and and it's right to laugh at that. This was my world. This was my mindset. I had no concept of the larger world that people were in it. And guess what I learned once I got to college? Everyone's the same. They were no different than me, even though I had always been told they were different, and people acted different, they were weird. All the people I went to school with from all around the country and all around the world, they were great people, and that had an impact on me. But far larger than that, number two, I got saved. My freshman year of college, 18 years old, for the very first time, I understood the gospel. And you hear people make this comment that when they came to Christ, their life changed drastically. And, and if you got saved at an early age, sometimes that's hard to understand. But if you got saved later in life, you know what I'm talking about. You, your life begins to change radically. And it didn't happen like all at once, it was a process of the Lord began to attack my thinking, not just in the area of racism, but across every area of life. And through these events and the Lord's grace to me, I can honestly say to you that racism became a thing of the past. It's not a sin I even struggle with in the slightest ever anymore and have since then. But as strange as this may sound, I am super, super thankful for my past. Because of where I grew up. Because of who I was. Because of what I thought and now because of God's grace to me. I feel as if I have a platform and a context from which I can speak directly into this subject with both knowledge and authority. And that's helpful for me because this morning we're coming to our next household relationship that we need to address here in Colossians 3, and that is the relationship of slavery, the master-slave relationship, which most people in America today immediately associate with racism. Do you agree with that comment in America? Because of our past, when we think slavery on and, and almost automatically connected with racism. And as I've been thinking about this topic for the past several weeks, I've been a bit conflicted about the best way to approach this for you. Because I want to help you to understand it. Obviously, I want to do justice to the text. To, to present it for what it says. Not for what other people want it to say. Okay, that That's always priority number one but the reality that i kept running into is that every single person in this room is going to approach this subject with certain presuppositions that will affect your understanding of of verses 22 through 41 like none of the other verses we've looked at in this section on household relationships the topic of slavery is a hot potato in america and most people don't want to talk about it. It's been a hot potato almost since our founding. And so I came to the conclusion that we couldn't even begin to work through these verses. And so I had taken some time to first address the topics of racism and slavery from a biblical perspective. Not, not just here in these verses, but just to step back and understand them from a much larger scale. Because I want to confront any wrong thoughts or attitudes in your mind, your heart, that you may have in those two areas. That's my goal. So, our mission today, then, is just to take a high level understanding of racism and slavery from a biblical perspective so that we can clear out any thoughts that don't align with the scriptures. Now, please understand them. Saying that is like saying I want to climb Mount Everest in an hour. All right? It, it's too big. I could spend an entire Sunday or a couple Sundays just on one subject. So I'm going into this up front recognizing I can't do complete justice to either subject. I hope you will see this for what I'm trying to do with it. Simply to inject some biblical truth into
1: your mind into your hearts and asking that the Spirit will convict you
0: in any place along the way that we touch where your thoughts do not match up with Scripture. That's my goal this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in. Let's start with the topic of racism,
1: and the reason I
0: want to start with racism is because, as I said, in the minds of most Americans, racism is the foundational concept for slavery. And we, in other words, when they think of slavery, they automatically assume that racism is involved. And for the average American, again, I would say that to think about slavery apart from racism would be like thinking about pizza without crust. You can't even begin to wrap your minds around it. You almost have to have the one to have the other. That's how we look at it. And the reason why that is, is obvious, because in the American experience, slavery here in the U.S. was racially based. And so it's right for us to attach the two thoughts. So let's begin by just stating five facts about racism. And these are not from the scriptures. These are just five facts. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one... I want to give you a definition, kind of our working definition for the morning. According to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, racism is the belief that the genetics is long. Don't write this The belief that the genetic factors which constitute race, ethnicity, or nationality are a primary determinant of human traits and capacities, and that ethnic differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Now, that was long. Here's the shortened version of that if you do want to write it in if racism is the belief that one particular race is naturally superior to all others. That, that is a technical definition of racism, that one particular race is superior to all others, naturally superior to all others. Please write down the word naturally, it's very important. But I don't think that that, even though it's technically correct, is most people's working definition. There's sometimes a difference between a technical definition and a working definition. Here's a working definition of slavery, as most people understand it. Slavery is the dislike of one or more other races. Or racism, excuse me, is the dislike of one or more other races. That's a working definition how most people experience it. If you dislike African Americans as a whole, guess what? You're a racist. If you dislike Hispanics as a whole, guess what? You're a racist. If you dislike Indians, people from India as a whole, you are a racist. This is going to be our working definition this morning. Fact number two, racism is a worldwide problem. Racism is a worldwide problem. And what I'm trying to communicate with this fact is that racism is not primarily a white American issue. Granted, white American people are racist, but it, it's, it, it goes across the entire world, which, if you think about it, is the irony of all ironies. That racism itself knows no racial bounds. That racism isn't racist. So you will find uh, white people who are racist towards Blacks. You'll find Blacks who are racist towards Hispanics. Hispanics who are racist towards Asians. Asians who are racist towards Middle Eastern people. Middle Eastern people who are racist towards whites. It crosses all ethnicities, races, nationalities. Racism is a worldwide problem. It's the irony of all ironies. You need to understand that this is a transcendent worldwide problem. Fact number three. And this is, if I just stay within the context of America, because obviously this is really all we can deal with, racism is not just a Southern thing. That's normally the joke or the understanding. I don't know if people are serious when they make those comments, well, you're from the racist, you must, or from the South, you must be racist. What? How did that work? Well, oh, you're from the North, you must not be racist. That's a lot. To, to say that racism is a Southern thing and the North is not racist, is both true and false on both accounts, okay? You will find people who live in the South who are racist, yes. And you will find people who live in the South who are not. You will find people who live in the North who are not racist, yes. And you will find people who live in the North who are. This fact was driven home to me when Jamie when and I lived in Chicago. I found a lot of racists in Chicago. This is a you know big city, big urban area, people from all over the world. This is huge, you're like, There, the racism wasn't white towards blacks, at least not what I heard. It was towards Hispanics and Indian people. Hispanics are lazy, Indian people, they're greedy, and both of them are untrustworthy. This was a fairly common mindset that I heard when I lived there from people that I worked with, just regular, regular folks in the office, okay? Racism crosses every state line It doesn't know the concept of the Mason-Dixon line. So don't get yourself into thinking that, well, it's a pro the country. No, 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 it spans across all of the U.S. Fact number four is this. Most racists are inconsistent. Most racists are inconsistent. It has been my observation that racism is normally expressed in a very inconsistent way. Normally, it seems, racism is expressed just to one or maybe two other races, but not to every other race. Remember our technical definition of racism. It's the belief in the natural superiority of one race over all the others. But that's not the working definition for most people. Most people just have a dislike of one or two other races. From what I've heard and read, Hitler was a true racist, okay? He genuinely believed that the Aryan race was the naturally superior race. It didn't matter what color the skin was. If you were not of that race, you were inferior in some way, to some degree or another. He would be, at least in my mind, consistent in his understanding of racism, whereas the people that I grew up with, they were not consistent. Blacks were looked down upon, but Hispanics were actually liked. Hispanics were held in fairly high regard. I mentioned earlier, Hispanics normally state themselves and churches, whites get too, but if there was going to be a mingling of races, that was the one that you could get away with and be okay. That the Hispanics could come to the white church and vice versa. There was a general liking of them where I grew up. It's not consistent. Either you are superior to all of them, or you're not superior to any of them. Which one will it be? Most people are inconsistent. In my opinion, inconsistent racism is worse than than consistent racism. Now this is just an opinion. And here's the reason I say inconsistent is worse than consistent, because at least with a person who's a consistent racist, obviously they come to some position of a principle or a belief that gives them this idea that they're better than everyone else. With the inconsistent racist, they're just being mean, and stupid. That's all they're doing. I might be able to talk with a consistent racist and and you know, target their belief for that principle, whatever it is, and maybe confront them with truth about it. Maybe I can change their minds. I've never been able to change people. You, you can't interact with that. So if I have to deal with someone, I'd rather deal with a consistent racist than an inconsistent one. Unfortunately, most people are inconsistent. Number five, racism is a learned attitude. It's a learned attitude, meaning no one is born racist. Now, people are born sinners. Racism is a sin. We're going to see they're born sinners. I'm not shocked when you see this in someone's life because we're all capable of any sin. But it is not a learned. Excuse me. It is not a naturally born thing. You have to learn that you are superior. Isn't that funny? Again, another irony that your belief that you're naturally superior doesn't come naturally. It has to be implanted somehow, and you have to learn that sin from someone or somewhere else. Those are my five facts. Now, as I stop and I think about these five facts, something begins to stand out to me about the nature of racism itself. I don't know if you notice it or not, but each of these five things begs a particular question. And that question is this. If these facts are true, is racism primarily a social problem or a spiritual problem? Which one is it? Because if you ask that question in the world, they're going to say it's a social problem. And so they're going to address it as a social problem. But I'm going to argue with you this morning, racism is not a social problem. Racism is a spiritual problem that has social implications. It's primarily a spiritual problem that we need to address. Now, why would I say that it's a spiritual problem? Let's quickly think through those five facts again. Number one, if I define racism as the belief, in the natural superiority of one race over another, then all that is is pride targeted at one or more groups of people. If you think back to the heart issue behind that belief, what you're talking about is the sin of pride, the sin of selfishness. I can't fight pride with education programs. I can't fight selfishness with public service announcements. The only thing that's going to Get to pride is the gospel, and so if I have someone I'm dealing with who's a racist, I don't need to attack just their thoughts and comments. I need to get back to the root issue in their heart, which ultimately is the sin of pride. Number two, if racism is a worldwide problem, then the only thing that causes worldwide problems is what? It's sin. The fact that we're all born as sinners. The fact that we're all born in rebellion against God, that's the only thing that causes Worldwide problems such as racism. Number three, if we feel that we can just explain racism away by relegating it to one part of the country or some other means, it proves that even for people who aren't racist, foolishness is found in our hearts. Either way, it's there. We think, oh, oh it's just this, it's just this, it's just these people, you're being a fool. And unfortunately, or unfortunately, I'm not sure which, foolishness and pride tend to be BFFs, okay? They tend to go together and you'll see them hanging out a lot of times. You're going to see that a lot in racism as you think about it and deal with it. The foolishness and pride are almost always hand in hand. Number four, the fact that racism is normally exercised inconsistently proves to me that the image of God is stamped on every heart. Because God made men, all men, all of us are made in His image. And whether or not even unbelievers realize it, they know that in their heart. God made them that way. And so to me, when I see someone who's being inconsistent in their racism, I think, huh, there you go. That's proof right there that sin hasn't totally worked their minds of hardship. There's still something in them that says, these are my brothers. They know it, even though they may deny it to your face. And then number five, the fact that racism doesn't come naturally, but has to be learned, proves to me that it is actually an act of faith that is adopted just like any other belief system and is therefore subject to critique. If this is something you have to accept, a viewpoint, you have to embrace and be able to come to it, and you do so either with some reason in your mind that you think is sufficient or more often without any good reason whatsoever, you need to understand that what you're taking is a leap of faith into a chasm of foolish pride. That is the faith system you have adopted, both you and your belief system can be analyzed, critiqued, and rejected. Now, I wanted to lay this groundwork first before turning to the scriptures to see what God has to say about the topic of racism. What, What does the Bible have to say? Well, I can answer this question one of two ways. I could take the time to work through each of those five points. Okay, about pride and selfishness and manliness of God, et cetera, et cetera, and, and deal with each one of them, and then apply it to the topic of racism. That would certainly be a worthy approach. Just take too long, and I got two big subjects to cover. So instead, let me ask you to turn to Galatians chapter three. I'll give you a second to get there. In Galatians three, because in Galatians three, you're going to see a concept that I think just cuts very quickly to the biblical solution for racism. Now, you all know the Colossians by now. We've been in Colossians for a long time. Um, you are familiar with these people, why Paul is writing to them, you don't don't know these believers in Galatia yet. But in case you're not reading (laughs) the book, Paul is writing this letter to the church in the city of Galatia. This church is primarily Jewish, most likely. Uh, At least it has a large Jewish element there. And one of the things that they're struggling with in this letter to the Galatians is the relationship between the law and the gospel, particularly from a Jewish perspective, okay? One of the big issues here, the main issue is is that there are people teaching that in order to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus and be circumcised. They're adding a piece of the law to the gospel, and of course, we know that that destroys the gospel. And so Paul is writing this letter to them, helping explain to them how you should understand the law, how it all works together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's begin reading in verse 23. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now we'll stop right there for a, minute, a moment and understand this point. Formerly, only those people who kept the law, who were under the system of the law, could be called sons of God. Okay, These were Abraham's physical descendants. This is Israel, the nation of Israel. These were the people that had been placed under the law by God himself as bringing bring them to a point of understanding their need for faith, but now... Faith has come. Now Christ has come. Christ has died for their sins, and the law is shown to be impotent in making people righteous before God. It couldn't make anyone righteous. All it could do was show them their sinfulness. Now, in Christ Jesus, everyone who has faith gets to be what? What did he say there? That last few words I read. They get to be sons of God. Remember that. Now let's keep reading. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, let me point out two things. First, for Paul's readers, the racism of their day wasn't black versus white or yellow versus red. It was Jew versus Greek. Okay, people of Jewish descent, people who would be children of Abraham versus everyone else. Okay, the word Greek here doesn't just refer to the people from Greece. It refers to Gentiles, anyone who is not Jewish. There was a, a common uh, racism on the part of each group there towards each other. So the Jews looked at the Greeks and said, we're better, we're superior, we're God's children, you're not naming any movement. The Greeks looked at the Jews and said, You're weird. What's wrong with you people? You do strange things. You're so stuck up. You think you're the only way. And nanny movement to move you, too. Okay? They, they didn't like one another. This is common racism. And so I couldn't point out that this is directly applicable to our discussion that we're having right here. Second, you need to understand what Paul means when he says here that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, or male or female. Is he saying that once you come to Christ, all of a sudden your parents are like, now I'm no longer a child of Abraham, or now I'm no longer a child of Theophilus, or whatever Greek name you want to put in here? Is he saying that all of a sudden you become this androgynous person that doesn't have gender, or that our role in society or money flow, whatever, is all just magically banished? Well, well of course not. Men who come to Christ as men, guess what? They're still men. Women who come to Christ as women, they're still women. If you're a slave and you come to Christ, you're still a slave. And if you're a freeman, you're still a freeman. And if you were born Jewish and you come to Jesus, you're still Jewish. And if you're Greek and you come to Jesus, you're still Greek. So he's obviously not describing changes in the physical world. Obviously, we are still... All of these things, what then is Paul's point here? Well, the answer is found at the end of verse 28. He says that the sphere in which these distinctions go away is not in the physical realm, but it's in the spiritual realm. In Christ, these distinctions lose their significance. In Christ, ones we're part of him, These things, they don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what race I was born from. Because guess what? Once I come to Christ and I'm in Christ, I'm Abraham's offspring. Even though I don't think I have a drop of Jewish blood in me. I'm now Abraham's child. just like the Jewish people. It doesn't matter what status of society I have. If I'm a slave and I have nothing, or if I'm a freeman of the richest man in the world, all of us together is what we are now. We are heirs according to promise. We've got an inheritance coming. It doesn't matter what your status in the physical world is. You have something way better in Christ. It doesn't even matter what my gender is. Male or female? Because guess what? When we come to Christ, every single one of us are made sons of God through faith. That's exactly what he says here. That, his point is, for the truth here, is that um, in Christ, we are being made into a new humanity, into a new nation, into a new people. And that means, folks, that the answer to racism it isn't education, it's redemption. That in the church, God is taking those old ways of living and those old ways of thinking and he's destroying them, he is nailing them to his cross, and he is making people from all these different backgrounds all these different positions in life, all these different things that divide us as humanity, he's making us one in Jesus Christ. That Christ does all of that, shows that he can melt away any and all of those wrong thoughts we have in the light of the glory of our Savior, who came to die for all men. If you still think of your true identity as being a white male American, or a black female American, or a Hispanic male American, or fill in the blank, whatever you want. You are missing the point of what Christ is doing in the church. Because your true identity isn't what you see when you look around at the faces of the people around you. Your true identity is now buried in Christ Jesus. You are one in Him. So I don't care about ethnicity. I don't care what nationality i don't care about any of these factors that we used to care about because now in the spiritual realm we are all one in jesus folks racism is a sin it's a sin for everybody but for people who name the name of jesus it is also an affront to what christ is doing in his mission with the church remember that if you have racist thoughts or feelings You are standing in direct opposition to what Christ is doing through the church. Shame on you. Shame on you. You are an adversary to Jesus. Don't forget that. And don't excuse yourself because you've got some weird thoughts in your mind that maybe were put there by parents or friends or other people. I understand that. But you are now responsible for yourself. You are a new creature in Jesus Christ and it is time see yourself that way. Stop looking at the outside. We are the church. This is what Christ is doing now. You should be thankful that Christ wasn't racist towards you. He was Jewish. Remember that. You're not. If he had treated you like he treat others, you would not be sitting in this room this morning. That's what I would have to say about racism if I had to give a short answer to it now. Let's quickly move on to the topic of slavery. I'm going to start this today, but I'm not going to finish it today. I hate doing that with you. Sorry, I just, we have to start it. I want to at least try to get your mind in a trajectory that when we come back to the text next Sunday, you've already got a little bit of groundwork late, okay? If you don't have this late, I don't think next Sunday will make as much sense. I won't be able to take the time to go back through all of this. But as I look at Colossians 3, What Paul is saying here about the master slave relationship, I would say that his comments here are somewhat shocking. Now remember that the master slave relationship is being brought up because Paul is giving guidelines on normal household relationships. He's looking at the normal, average, 1st century Mediterranean household saying, how should you all live together, okay? Because in a normal, average, 1st century Mediterranean household, that's a lot to say. You would have all of these component pieces. You would have a husband and wife, you'd have parents and kids, and you would most likely, probably vast majority of the time, have <laughs> slaves and masters. As the Colossians are listening to this letter, my guess is that almost everyone in the room fits into one of these six categories, okay? Because it's just their way of life. And so Paul, he just addresses the slaves and masters as if there's nothing wrong at all whatsoever. And that, I would say, is what's so offensive to us about these verses. He doesn't even act like they're wrong, because in our minds, we automatically assume or associate slavery with evil. I mean, freedom is, after all, a God-given right and an inalienable right. Liberty is something that our Creator bestows on all of us. That's what we're told, correct, by our founding fathers. And so we see slavery as inherently evil. And that view was, of course, confirmed to us by our American experience of slavery. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, an estimated 12 million Africans were shipped to the Americas as slaves. Now that's not just the U.S., that's the entire New World, the Americas, okay? 12 million as slaves. These men and women were subjected to some of the harshest cruelty this world has seen. They were whipped, beaten, raped, and imprisoned, tortured, stabbed, shot, and hung. They were separated from their families and were treated as cattle property in the full use and whim of their owners. They were not viewed as people. They were viewed as animals and oftentimes they were slaughtered as animals. And so when I combine my American understanding of the inherent rightness, freedom, and liberty With our past atrocities in the area of slavery, it's no wonder that I see slavery as inherently evil. And when I come to this text, Colossians 3, Paul's words here clearly don't match my view. For example, he doesn't command the slaves to leave their masters. It's not revolt, rebel, run, kill your masters, go free, you have a right to be free, take off. In fact, he tells them to obey their masters. And not just token obedience either. As you read through those verses, he's talking about sincere, heartfelt obedience. And then when he talks to the masters, he doesn't tell them, emancipate your slaves, let them go, stop being jerks. All he tells them to do is to treat them kindly, fairly, justly, as God has treated them. When I read Colossians 3, I'm left scratching my head asking, how can Paul condone something so evil? can God condone it? These are, after all, His words. And then to make matters even worse, because I like to make things worse before we make them better. To make matters even worse, if I turn to the rest of the scriptures to try to find some help and solutions to my problems, my problems actually become far worse because in the Old Testament, slavery isn't just condoned. God actually regulates it in the law as a part of normal, everyday Jewish life. And passages like Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25, God lays out various rules for Hebrews purchasing Hebrews as slaves. A man can sell himself Leviticus twenty-five thirty-nine. A woman can sell herself Deuteronomy fifteen twelve. There are a number of regulations given on the subject uh, that doesn't fit very well in my view of slavery. And so I think what this does is it forces us to step back for just a moment and rethink two things about the topic of slavery. Number one. I want to think about this: Is freedom really a right afforded to us by God? I mean, is liberty something that our Creator truly endows us with? And the clear answer to that, please, no. You go home today, take this whole week, take a month, however long it and you search the Scriptures for a promise of physical freedom. Now, there's promises for spiritual freedom. Understand that. Go home and search for promises of physical freedom, that God's children will never be slaves. Okay? The only thing you might find is in uh, Deuteronomy, Exodus, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy or Numbers, where Moses is telling the children of Israel, you obeyed everything perfectly, God will bless you, you won't have to worry about everything. Of course, we know that didn't happen and never would have happened because they're sinners. So they were never obeyed perfectly and didn't. You look at the history of the scriptures and regularly you see God's people Now, sometimes that's because they were sinful, right? And God's punishing them. He's disciplining them. He sends them off into uh, exile. But sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do with sin whatsoever. Think of Joseph as an example. What did Joseph do wrong? Nothing. Did he have a promise of freedom from God for his righteous behavior? Certainly not. He ends up a slave the rest of his life. Do not forget that even when Joseph is the second man in Egypt, he's still Pharaoh's slave. He is not free to do what he pleases. He had lost his freedom for the rest of his life. He did nothing wrong whatsoever. God gives us no promise for physical freedom in the scriptures. Second, while slavery in the American context was racially based and cruelly executed, slavery as itself, okay, as an institution, if you can like divide from experience for a minute and just hold it up as a social construct. Slavery itself doesn't have to be that way. Both the examples from Exodus 21 as well as Colossians 3, I think, prove this point. In Exodus 21, race wasn't a factor at all. Again, when we think slavery, we immediately connect it to racism. But in Exodus 21, you've got Hebrew slaves working for Hebrew masters. No, this is not a racial issue. If I had to call it anything, I would call it an occupational issue. Because it was very, very, very different than what you and I understand. It's, it's a form of slavery where a person might actually see it to their advantage to be a slave. Can you imagine a situation where it would be to your advantage to be a slave? That, that's hard for us, isn't it? Because we've got certain thoughts so ingrained in our minds that clearly in, in Israel, this is something that people could do to choose as their life's occupation. That sounds so strange to us. That's exactly what the scripture is saying. That's the form of slavery that they are familiar with at that point. In verse 5 of Exodus 21, God says, look, if the, he says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. We read these words, we're like, how? How in the world? can this be, that a man who was otherwise getting ready to go free could say, I, I want to be a slave for all, the rest of my life, please pick me now and put a hole in my ear to show everyone I'm a slave forever. We can't even begin to get our minds around this concept because, again, our understanding of slavery is so far different than what you see here in this Old Testament example. You have a somewhat similar uh, situation in Colossians. Again, slavery in the, in the Mediterranean world isn't necessarily racially based. It's probably more socially or economically based. When you take race out of the equation of slavery, it begins to change things a bit. But not only is race a factor, the treatment of slaves is also very different in both of these contexts, or at least in theory. In the Old Testament, slaves are given rights. They, they can buy their own freedom. They're tired of being slaves. They can work it on the side or earn their own money. Hey, master, I've got money for free. Well, what slave in America ever got that opportunity? None. Uh, They must be set free after six years at most this is for Israel again unless they were to serve their masters forever when it reached the sabbatical year, every seventh year the slaves could go free. And the masters had to send them out with livestock and grain and wine to help set them up for life. No slave in America ever got that opportunity. It's a much better different situation. Uh, If their master were to harm them, guess what he had to do? He had to pay them back make retribution. He could even be put to death for what he had done. This is a completely different concept here. You you see similar things in the Mediterranean world, perhaps not to the same degree, but slaves in the Mediterranean world also, often held high positions of authority within homes. A lot of them were very successful business people, not all, I'm not trying to paint a rosier picture than what it's supposed to be. I'm just saying that the situation in both Colossians and Exodus very different than what we saw in American history. And in those conditions, slavery can actually be viewed as a beneficial relationship for both master and slave. But, lest you get the wrong impression, while slavery can be a beneficial relationship, sinfulness of man almost always guarantees that it is. You want to understand slavery from a Theological perspective and its abuses, and understand that piece right there. That while slavery itself, as a, as a social construct, could actually be beneficial for everyone who was in it, almost never, almost never, does that actually happen. And see, that's the real problem with slavery. Because men are evil, slavery is. And so if you ask me to answer the question, if you're trying to pin me down, does the Bible say that slavery is wrong? Here's your answer. No. It does not say that it's wrong. But if you ask me if that makes slavery right, guess what I'm going to say. No. It doesn't make slavery right either. The only way I see biblically for slavery to be okay is if, two things, number one, all parties submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ And number two, all parties voluntarily choose that way of life. You you take out either of those two pieces, and think about how hard those two pieces are, I just named. You take out either of those two, and slavery doesn't work. And that is why, historically speaking, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has flourished, slavery has come. That's why you think about England, you think about America, as the gospel flourished and began to change people, people began to understand that all men were made in the image of God. All men deserve in that sense to be treated with honor and respect, out of honor and respect for God. When that mindset and understanding, when the grace of Jesus Christ began to flourish and thrive in societies, every single place that happens, you see the institutions of slavery and the way it is normally practiced. just up. Every single time. As men's hearts are changed, the whole institution of slavery falls apart. Now, here's an understatement of the morning. This isn't the kind of message that has a lot of great applications at the end of it, okay? I recognize that. Like on the slavery side, none of you have ever been a slave. Nor do any of you own slaves. I have nothing to say, well, go home and treat your slave better, or go home and, uh, you know, make sure you, you obey your master. I don't have anything for that one. And for, the, for racism, unless you've hidden your true feelings very well, which is quite possible on that subject, unless you've hidden your true feelings very well, I'm not familiar with anyone in this church who is racist. I have not heard anything or seen anything. And yet, particularly on that second point, while none of you perhaps may be you know full-fledged, card carrying racist, I'd be shocked if in this room there were some of you with those inklings in your heart at least. Maybe it's something you have to fight against and struggle with, but they're there. And so, please understand this morning that the sin of racism is in no way compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Racism should not be named in the church of Jesus Christ because of what the church is, what Christ is doing in it. Rather, we need to embrace what he is doing in making us into a new nation, a new people, what he's doing here through the church. That means then, if I understand that correctly, particularly in Galatians 3, that the church is doing something that no civil rights movement ever could, that no political action committee or government agency can ever do. We are finally bringing about the reconciliation of the nation in the church of Jesus Christ. That in the church, Jesus is fixing what was broken. He's mending what was torn making us whole again he's making us into one new family josh Garrett says this says the heavenly beings look down at the church and they see an amazing family the power of the gospel is not only changing individuals but it's also creating a whole new kind of humanity in the midst of a strife-torn world a world divided by gender by race by class and by political ideology the church is a city set on a hill for people who once hated God and each other become God's children and members of one family. That's what the cross has done. And so while some people will continue to disgrace the cross by setting it on fire and dancing around it in their bedsheets, the rest of us have a responsibility to honor the cross and to honor what Christ is doing in the church. And now, there's no more Jews, no more Greeks. In Christ, we're all Abraham's offspring. There's no more male, there's no more female, you know, why? Because in Christ, we're all sons of God. labor free it doesn't really matter. Because every single one of us are hearers according to his promise. All your faith in Jesus Christ. That is how the gospel should affect both of these views. Come back next week and we'll look at the text and see more of what Paul has to say about Christ. For this subject, uh, it has the ability to incite passion in people's hearts like a few others. And that makes sense when we understand the deep sinfulness involved. For this morning, best I have been able within the time I had alive, I've attempted to present your truth on these things, <coughs> understand them from your point of view, or clearly, recently, it it violates everything you're doing in here everything that Cornerstone is supposed to be about it it, it just laughs in the face of what you're doing in the church so Lord this morning if there is anyone in this room any single person with even the slightest hint of pride, foolishness arrogance in their hearts towards other people oh God please severely. Help them to see very clearly what it is you are doing. And may they come humbly submitting themselves to your worship here in the church. May they understand that the truest command, the, 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 the ultimate command you gave us is to love one another as you have loved us. And you, you didn't love us because of our skin color. You love us in spite of it. Thank you, Lord, that you were raised You did not reserve your salvation just for the children of Israel. But you opened it up to us all. God, we we just fall on our knees in humbleness, thanking you for your grace. Lord, even people in the top of slavery. We can't divorce it from from our past. We, We know that, Lord, and we don't want to. But I pray, Lord, as we come into this text next week and we think about these relationships and we understand. Practical applications for today and how they would relate in our culture.
1: But I pray that
0: our commitment to the text will continue to be supreme, and that our commitment to you and our love for will just grow and more. And so, Lord, in all of these things, as we always attempt to do every year in our ministry and life,
1: we are
0: trying to bring glory.
1: Lord, I know that I've not done that perfectly.
0: I just pray that your Spirit will take your word, and your truth, drive it deep in the hearts of each and every person that they, they remember those things, change by them. Lord, through that, when you take our church, you take Cornerstone, Lord, and make it that city set on a hill that Harris talked about, so that when people look in at what's going on here, they can see a picture of what the future is going to look like. But people from every nation, tribe, tongue, all are gathered together around your throne. All those divisions don't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is you, Lord. I pray that you will give us an opportunity here in Virginia Beach to show people what the future is going to be like. Show people what Christ can do. Show people the gospel—the most powerful thing. Lord, we love you. Pray, Lord, that you will help us.